Welcome to episode 52 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, Chris, I hope both of you are doing well today. Yeah, it's been a really good week, and uh, next week's going to be, or this coming week's going to be pretty busy for me, kind of getting some rush prototyping work out for a client, and um, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. I'm not going to, nothing I can show on Instagram, unfortunately. Uh, just you, productive on the UMC, uh, making more parts of the motorcycle, starting getting into uh, more five axis stuff that I can't show because it's proprietary stuff. Uh, but other than that, we have a special guest today, and his name is Daniel Diarco. And he's a little bit different than the people that we have on the show, but I thought he has such a unique perspective on mixing the technologies of CNC and videography that I thought he'd be such a great person to have on the show today. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. So like for people who don't know or are not familiar with what you do, how would you describe what it is you do on Instagram and, you know, with camera choreo and your personal page? Hmm. Because <laughs> I try to think about it and I had trouble describing it too, because you kind of mix a lot of things and I, I don't want to. Well, sure well, actually, I actually, before I answer, I am curious to see or hear uh, what your guys' perspective is on the content. Like, what what is your interpretation of what I do? Okay, for me, I look at your stuff and I'm I'm just amazed because you're mixing not only technology like CNC, uh, uh, looks like electronic programming and things like that, and you're you're using it, incorporating it into your videography, your the shoots that you plan. And um, for people who haven't checked out his stuff, I highly recommend you stop and take a look at his things and then continue the podcast because that will definitely help explain. But for example, one of the things you did recently was that icebreaker project where you saw this commercial and you wanted to kind of reinvent it. And you you basically found a way to do it on an iPhone and you, you rotated this icebreaker as it would travel upward on the Z and it would spin through these plastic ice cubes and a box and it's just crazy like the amount of different types of skills that you have to bring together to create this final piece of like work or art um but i don't know what to call it because it's kind of like not something that i've seen before which is why i think people will really enjoy checking you out yeah i i would classify myself as someone who's a bit of a hybrid so my my background is split kind of 50 50 between i spent about 10 years working as a photographer and filmmaker. And I was actually working in Los Angeles for about four or five years. But the thing is, I was I was doing mostly product photography and video and things like fashion. So it was a little bit, well, a little bit different, I guess. Um, and then the other, like the past five years, I spent learning fabrication, uh, manufacturing, CNC, uh, 3D printing, CAD, and programming. My brother actually is a developer, so he he's a programmer. He went to, um, or still goes actually to Sac State University, and so he's learned C plus plus, Java Java JavaScript, um, a bunch of stuff. And so he he kind of introduced me to the basics of C plus plus, and that's what I utilized to take things like Arduino projects further. But what actually happened with my career was, I started making videos for fun, like on YouTube, for example, and Instagram. Um, in the background of my photography career. So when I was starting to make those videos, like behind the scenes, I actually didn't really have much interest in being like any kind of uh, content creator for video. But what happened was 
I, I got extremely bored and had this huge curiosity about making stuff. And that was actually born because uh, about eight years ago, um, I, I was involved in this really big accident where I used to be an acrobat before all of this stuff. I, I, was, I was wanting to be a performing artist. And I broke my neck really, really badly. And so I was in the hospital and they told me that my neck was broken in two different places and that they have to get these specialized machined parts like 5-axis CNC machine parts. It was uh, tantalum and titanium screws, all that stuff, and plates. It was really interesting stuff in a bone graft. And so they had to install that. And so I became kind of part robot. And after I got out of the hospital, I wound up in college and I went, you know what? <laughs> Why am I, what am I doing back in college? I don't really want to do this, especially after a life-changing uh, circumstance. So that's when I kind of split away from that formal education. And I started dabbling in both photography and getting a little more curious about technology and fabrication up until five years later on where I got really into it. So it, there was kind of a tipping point where I was in my photography career, but behind the scenes, I was still building stuff. And I just got super into it out of nowhere. Oh, man, so, that, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, that, so, I mean, yeah, self-taught, right? It sounds like on the, on yeah. the uh, digital fabrication side. Yeah. Yes, for the most part. I would say maybe 80, 90% of it, but I did work in a manufacturing facility. It was a prototyping job shop and we worked okay. predominantly, yeah, we worked predominantly with thermoplastics. So uh, Peak, Delrin, PC, uh, polycarbonates, uh, acrylics, uh, basically like polypropylenes, whatever, whatever people ask for, we just machine that. And I used to work on a Haas VF2SS. So that was pretty nice uh, learning that machine. And we had a giant five by 10 Thermwood CNC router, which had like one of those uh, five tool typewriter style tool changers. It was really interesting, but in my opinion, kind of a waste of pneumatics because <laughs> that's what they use for that. <laughs> um, basically, imagine five pneumatic cylinders in a row and each one is holding one tool. It was just ridiculous, but it was a beautiful machine. Um, and we also had a, a BSA, which is, I think, maybe less prominent of a brand, but we did have a BSA CNC router that was also a five by ten. And so my, uh, my colleague, this guy named Cam, um, he would teach me all about offsets and how to do like the, how to call the M6 macros and everything and how to do the offsets and diameter measurements, everything. And uh, I learned a lot from people at that job, but it was a small team. We only had uh, six of us there. And that was, that was actually after I got into CNC already. So I, I used to have a Shapeoko XXL. And oh, that, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that machine okay. was, was really great for me to learn the essentials on. But how, how these hobby CNC machines do uh, things like tool offsets and probing, in my experience, was totally different when I got introduced to a Haas. It, it just was a different realm of measuring things. So uh, I, I found it very educational when I worked at a manufacturing facility. There's a lot going behind the scenes about the, the differences between those controls. Um, part of it, uh, just not to uh, take us too far off course, um, but the Shapeoko, the controller is basically an Arduino uh, AT uh, Mega style uh, microcontroller. So there's not a lot of memory on it. So all the offsets and stuff are stored on the computer side of things. Uh, so there's really not a lot of room to keep advanced macros on the machine. Uh, whereas on the Haas, like you've got all of that baked into the control it's it's a different world. Um, how did you find the, the the transition going from small machine to big machine? 
Uh, it was lovely. I really enjoyed it because it was so different. I think that if the machine was too similar to a Shapeoko, I'd be like, oh, well, this is it. <laughs> but but because there were so many things to learn in that controller, I found it fascinating. But the thing is that the gen, uh, next gen control, which I think they, they call it that, was remarkably easy to pick up in a couple of days i had the essentials down and i i didn't master it or anything but I, I at least knew how to navigate through it and where the the general functions were to be called from and how to control it um so you can imagine my first couple days i was on that machine i was just jogging it around left and right up down it was really fun and you were let me see if i got this right so you were taught machining by a programmer named Cam, I think yes. you, you landed in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we actually made that joke because he's the one that did all the CAD in Cam and his name was Cam. So it was it was almost <laughs> serendipitous how I got ta taught by a, name, a guy named Cam. He was actually Vietnamese. <laughs> his, uh, his destiny was preordained in life. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was written on his birth certificate. That's what it was. Yeah. So, so what... Uh, what so software do you use to program nowadays then? Oh, I use Fusion 360. I do have I do have SolidWorks Visualize and SolidWorks uh, on a Windows computer on a PC. But I think because of Fusion's ease of use, I do tend to gravitate more towards that. I, I think most people would agree uh, that Fusion is pretty easy to use. But uh, so you started off as a performing art acrobat person, then this horrific accident happened, which looks like thankfully you recovered from pretty good and then that led you into like the cnc world of the fabrication things and then coupled with your videography experiences kind of how you've landed where you are now is that kind of like the, the whole overarching gist of it correct yeah yeah i i i struggle with condensing it down to a, a more bite-sized story because the story is probably about five times longer than that but the what I would say, in, in case I failed to address the question earlier, because it's such a tangent, is um, I would say that what I'm doing is actually a part of a much bigger growing industry of work for uh, people in the in the visual arts fields. So I'm sure you've seen it. There are people out there who use things like robotic arms and mechatronics and whatnot to film uh, other commercials. Let's say it's like a Hershey's commercial or Kit Kat bars or a yeah. wine commercial. Yeah. So that is an emerging industry full of, of I, would, I would consider pretty skilled individuals who have, let's say, a mechatronics or engineering or mechanical engineering or programming background. And, and it's, it's something that's becoming more popularized, I would say, alongside in, in parallel to CGI. Um, because there, there, are, there are some companies out there that I think are against doing complete CGI ads because it might go against their own personal regulations and rules about how they're marketing things falsely. Right. So they, right. they prefer to market something that that is actually shot in real life. And it, it gives more of an authentic feel, in my opinion. That's interesting. Uh, that sounds like somebody I follow by the name of Steve Geralt. Yes, he's, he's, yeah, he's very popular. A lot of people who have been following me will ask me if 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 like I know him personally, if I've met him or something or if I've heard of him. And I've definitely seen his stuff. Actually, I think I first saw his stuff maybe four or five years ago or something like that. Um and and he's he's remarkable what he does. He's really good, and he I think he kind of dominated the shtick of utilizing a robotic arm for shooting commercials. And the the thing about what I do is I I kind of wanted to expand, not necessarily away from that completely, but 
just in a sense that people know that you don't need a $50,000 robot arm to film a commercial, right? Yeah. You, you can, you can use uh, uh, very basic electronics or like the last video I, I, I made this kind of jewelry ad with a, uh, a Movado watch. And that was just done with black sand and a, a 12 volt DC motor. And, and I, I was able to get this result that I was really happy with, but I, I want to kind of promote this idea that, um, if you don't feel like doing CGI, you can shoot this stuff without something that's that's ridiculously expensive. Yeah, that's actually part of the reason why I like what you do is like uh, kind of like in the vein of what Winston and Enya, we started on hobby machines and we were able to accomplish things that I think uh, people might not have think were able to be done on that. And it's a much cheaper machine. You don't you don't need to buy these expensive machines to do some of the things that we've done. But when I look at you, you're able to do things with very simple things. Uh, very inexpensive, but your end result, the execution is so top notch that it competes with people like Steve who have like these really expensive, unlimited budget type, you know, work and, and things like that. So um, that's one of the things that I found fascinating about the kinds of things that you have done. So I, I appreciate that. I'm sure everyone else does as well. Uh, I'm another component to that is also um, the, the background in things like video editing and all that stuff. So, so a lot of, I think a, a lot of the misconception uh, from people who might have seen my stuff for the first time, they might think that it went all nice and dandy the very first time I shot it. But really, <laughs> with anything just like CNC machining, it, uh, whether it's a, a VMC or a router, a lot of times you see the end product and you can't show necessarily the full story behind that end product coming into fruition, but you can show a very condensed version of that story. And I think that that's what people are really after is, is people psychologically are always trying to solve some kind of mystery that they, that they don't understand. And if you can not only solve that mystery for them and take them along the ride, but if you can create that mystery with a video first or a clip or a photo, then they're extremely engaged in finding out what, what the hell just happened. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you see that in some of Apple's ads, uh, especially for like the, Apple Watch, and I think they did it for the Mac Pro. It's like the first commercial I ever saw that had CNC, you know, yes, um, process. You know, they showed some of the manufacturing process, but very kind of very uh, high production value video version of it. But yeah, that was kind of neat. And that's some of my favorite work is uh, well, you know sh showing how the stuff's made. Yeah, people like to crap on Apple a lot, and it's. I mean, I know there's this kind of in internal civil war between let's say Apple and Samsung phones. But the thing is, I, I love the way Apple does their video uh, marketing. It's, it's, it's very dynamic. It's engaging. It, it catches you off guard and it's stimulating. And I, I think that those things, they average out to a pretty darn good commercial because one thing that I, I like to tell people who, let's say someone asks me for advice about how to make a pretty good video. I tell them, you have 15 seconds to get me engaged. If I, if I click away from your video or swipe away in 15 seconds, there, something wasn't quite averaging out to a, a really engaging video. Uh, there is this filmmaker who I really enjoy. I, I started watching him a long time ago, maybe seven years ago. His name is Damien Krizzle, K-R-I-S-L. And I, I, I don't quote me on this, but he might be from Denmark. I know he's European. But he, he primarily works in fashion and beauty. And so I, I saw him as a big inspiration when I was shooting that stuff. And 
what he does is I would say the embodiment of sensory overload. He has this way of, of catching you off guard. And once you're watching, it, it's almost like you're sitting right there and you're hearing and, and, and even smelling the things he's showing you. It's pretty insane. Um, and, and a lot of my inspiration comes from people like that who have this way of, of displaying and pre presenting something uh, in 15 seconds. And one of the other things that I, I noticed that in one of your posts is you're, you're also building your own CNC machine. Oh yeah. Big Bertha. <laughs> Big Bertha. Yeah. There you go. So like yeah. how, how did, what brought you to there and like, what kind of, I'm always curious about design considerations. Like yeah. when a person builds a machine, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? How do you get there? Right. Like what were kind of your, your thoughts and process on that? Well, first of all, pain in the ass, serious pain <laughs> in the ass. Um, <laughs> that's, that was, that was the first design consideration I failed to acknowledge. Was it going to be pain in the ass? Yes, it was. But um, my machine, I so my goal actually isn't to be, um, let's say, one of the, the air quotes greats of filmmaking or photography or content creation. That actually isn't my goal at all. Most of these videos, I'm just having fun. But my end goal is actually to have a product design company. And uh, that is something that takes a lot of, uh, took a lot of consideration. You know, I, I want to have eventually one day a family and settle down and get old and just do my hobbies all day. That's what I want to do and have passive income. And, um, but I also want to have a company that I really believe in. And so that is why I decided, okay, well, can't exactly afford or have space for a Haas TM1P. Or even a, what is it, a DM1? Like the smaller machine that Haas has, you know? CM1, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, then, yeah and there's like smaller machines, like a robo drill. But thing is, they're still pretty darn heavy. And I, I currently live on a heavy, uh, a really steep incline. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to get riggers trying to get inside this tiny one-car garage uh, on an incline. But my machine, I decided to build it because I wanted to start a product design company and start prototyping ideas that I have primarily for filmmakers and photographers. Cause I think me being one of them gives me this perspective that I understand what they need. Um, and I also have this other predicament of wanting to relocate back to Los Angeles this year. And I knew, okay, well, if I'm going to move back to LA, I can't exactly have a 5,000 pound VMC in my garage and expect that to be a, you know, a cakewalk. Um, so I decided to build my own and my machine is about six feet tall. Um, it has a 24 by a 12 by 24 inch table. And I think it's, uh, I think the clearance from the nose of the spindle to the table might be 16 inches. I, I have to double check. I, I took about a four month break from it just because I was busy doing video work and also making these other short videos for fun. Um, but yeah, uh, right now I'm working on the enclosure. I'm working on the electronics cabinet and trying to make it as industrial looking as possible. I uh, have a bunch of, I think, a 50 pound box of electronics that I have to sort through. Um, but yeah, I, my, my requirements for it were to have a BT30 spindle that's AC servo driven, uh, one to one ratio belt driven, um, to have a 12 by 24 table like I mentioned. To have enough clearance in the Z so that I could potentially build a tool changer uh, in the future and was made from a material that I could disassemble and throw in maybe a car and, and, or transport in maybe two cars. Um, so that's why I, I chose to take uh, 80-20, which isn't the strongest of material, but I, I filled it with epoxy granite. 
And uh, that added a bit of mass and weight to it. And I think it's going to dampen a lot of vibrations I might get in the machine. Oh, I 100% agree that it'll probably dampen a majority of the vibration. I mean, that, that has always been an idea is to fill 8020 or extrusion-based things with epoxy granite and let it harden because it, it's such a good um, material for that. Yeah. But, okay, so I, okay. Uh, one thing I should say, if there's anyone out there, who, who's the majority of your audience? Is it like CNC machinists? Is it fabricators? Um, is it is it uh, DIY people in general, makers? Yeah, it's pretty eclectic. I'd say they're mostly focused on, uh, you know, almost every, probably every one of our listeners has access to a CNC machine, hobby or professional or industrial. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll say that if there's anyone out there who's considering the idea of building uh, their own CNC router or machine in general, um, one thing I, I would do differently is use, if you're going to use 8020, use it but in moderation. So I, I kind of splurged on 8020 even for the stand because I had this, this idea of mounting um, the, the table itself to the stand. And I think that alone cost me like 1500 bucks just for the stand. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I had some savings and I went, um, sure. <laughs> I'll do that. But Sounds like my Shapeoko enclosure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy how expensive extrusions are. I, I want them to have more competition so they start pricing competitively. That's what I want. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I would do that differently. I would just weld a stand, maybe MIG weld a stand or something. And I would say that probably think about how heavy it's going to be. Now, my, my casters that I have it on, I have these retractable casters on the machine so I can kind of kick up the lever and it falls down on these rubber industrial feet. So that's nice. But I, I find that I need a lot of leverage to lift it back up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, should I just get a pallet jack? I don't know. But th those are things that I would do differently. I would probably just weld a stand and limit how much 8020 I actually um, invest into because there are other things that I want to buy that are much more important. Like I want to get a, uh, what's it called? A, um, you guys know that wireless probing company? It's uh Renishaw, not Renishaw, it's the other yeah. one. Uh, Bloom, there's Bloom Renishaw at the high end. It's a, it's a. Darn, it's gonna bother me for a week because I was just looking at it the other day. But anyway, the so for example, I, I want to get things like a probe, but now I'm trying to budget things more, uh, more wisely after my previous mistakes. Right, and you said you were talking about possibly adding an ATC. What what kind of style like like a like a umbrella style or what what kind of idea did you have for it? I well I really like I really like the idea of a brother style tool changer like Robo style tool changer. I can't oh, wow. I can I cannot replicate the the gear driven style of tool changer they have because I, I believe they have a gear on the inside of the nose internally, which the the spindle ro will rotate the carousel, and I'm sure that programming is a lot more complex, but I have I have kind of a, a general layout that I want to I want to cam up and design out or or sorry a cat up and design out and um, it would just involve a pneumatic cylinder that would be pretty much the only difference I think but I I, I really like that style of tool changer just because I think it looks awesome but I, I think um the umbrella style that will be a very good uh, secondary option um, there's also the wine rack but that tends to take up a lot of space yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I like, I second your brother style. That would be awesome to see. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how smart I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking through your uh, Instagram. It looks like 
you had a recent project where you, this is kind of how hardcore uh, Daniel is. So you needed uh, some, some aluminum camera brackets. So you just went and grabbed some soda cans and afford, uh. forged some, <laughs> melted them down, cast your own. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I didn't show the part where I threw the soda cans in just because it was probably about 30 soda cans, I think, to get a very small amount because a lot of it's just there's so many impurities in it and you get a lot of yeah. dross floating to the top. But um, yeah, that, that was just a, kind of a fun project. It's it's highly inefficient, I think, to cast things. Honestly, if you're into CNC, it's just ridiculous, but it's really fun. <laughs> I, I will say that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I like to see. Uh kind of starting from raw material like that. That's like hardcore. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, after that project, that was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> Did you already have that set up for casting or anything? Or is that something that you had to make for this project? No. Well, okay. So actually, um, that was at my old apartment. Uh, uh, yeah. And I know it's like, are you doing that in an apartment complex? But I had, I had my own little mm -hmm. backyard corridor that was able to basically do all this fabrication, uh, machining and casting and stuff. And no one really cared or bothered me but yeah i i basically built this um this whole setup out of like a a big steel bin thingy like a bucket and um yeah it, it was it was probably about three days of trying to cast that material into it into that shape and everything but i had i had uh several casting projects just because i was very curious about it and mm. it was very rewarding but it's it's incredibly messy and and pretty dangerous if there's moisture in the ground I've had yeah. an explosion happen. <laughs> yeah. Molten metal everywhere. That's always yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah. Good thing I was wearing a face mask, but it's, it's pretty, eh, it's pretty sketchy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Sorry if we're going on some kind of tangent thing. I no, we're good. No, no, no. This is awesome. Yeah. This is actually what, what I was hoping to talk about. Um, the project that made me like my job was the watch thing you just did. I like, I, and it's such a, like you, you said, it wasn't, anything crazy but it was just where did you get the idea it almost like you you watched a coffee bean grinder and thought hey i could do that and make things disappear or something but can you talk a little bit about how you got to that idea to do that thing um let's see well it, the one of the things that um if there's any content creators out there people who are getting really into uh, filming what they're doing or whether it be making or cnc or maybe they're just traditional filmmakers or uh, creators who want to do other stuff. One thing that I'll say is, um, I I don't really, I don't really just think of ideas. So they don't they don't magically. Uh, there's no like divine entity or something that throws it onto my brain and goes, "Wow, this is a great idea," and I just make it. Usually, I'll, I'll kind of prototype an idea based on one central, uh, one central node that will branch out into different. Uh, uh, alternative ideas based on that that central point. So my idea was was actually to have the watch floating in there by itself. And what happened was it wasn't quite working out the way that I wanted it to. Um, I think a few days before that, I jumped in this this river, and I was just throwing leaves in the river, seeing how how like I could manipulate buoyancy, but then translate that to sand. And so I knew that if you vibrate sand at a pretty high enough frequency, it'll start acting like a, a viscous uh, liquid. And when I started doing that with the watch by itself, it wasn't really doing what I wanted it to do. It was just kind of flipping upside down and rotating slowly. And it went, hey, stop doing that. And so it got to a point where I went, okay, 
I'm going to see if I, if I can find some random object and throw it in there. So I found this big ass diamond thing. It was a diamond shaped prism wrapped their watch around that. And I threw it in there and it, it looked a little bland. Like there wasn't enough light on the face of the Movado watch. And so that's when I figured, Oh, well, what if you shine light behind the diamond prism because the, the strap or the, the, the watch face is covering that light anyway. I tried that and then, yeah, it looked better. So then after that, I started adding smoke and fog and everything. And it was just going all over the place and it wasn't doing what I wanted either. So what a lot of my process, I don't have a set layout for process in, in what I do. It's a lot of experimentation. And, and that actually is, is what I promote in content creation in general is if you have an idea and it doesn't work the first time, don't get discouraged. Just pivot to something that's that's an alternative to that route. And it might even be better. And just keep experimenting until you wiggle your way to this grandiose idea that people thought you just made up in your mind in five minutes. That, that's pretty cool. Actually, I want to tailor uh, whip back to something you said earlier where you mentioned how like you're you're trying to create this story in like 15 seconds and grab someone's attention. So regarding to this project, did you already have like something, do you write something down first and then work backwards off of that? Or like, what is your process before you get to like, actually, cause I know you, you wanted the watch to do something and then you're physically trying to like make some fork and it didn't look right. So you would change it and keep going. But before that, even before you get there, do you have like a written process or do you jot ideas down? Do you create something before you get there? Or is this, you just kind of start in your brain and you just start working at stuff? Yeah. Uh, so the, the thing with, with creative projects, is I actually said this in another uh, interview thingy that I did. But the, the good and bad thing about creative projects is there's so many things you can do. But it's also a, a terrible fate for your project to suffer through. Because if, if, yes. you're, yeah. if you have 50 different things you can do and you try to, it's like giving a kid, you tell this kid who, who's uh, fairly competent at drawing and he's five years old, you're like, hey, you're a talented artist. Here's a here's hundred different colors. Paint me something magical. And the kid's going to be like, uh, I only know how to paint with these three colors, but that is his working boundaries. That's, that's where he, that's where he thrives. And if you can, if you can limit actually what you're willing to do, how much budget you're willing to spend, what, what machines you don't want to use, what tools you don't want to use the end result, then you'll, you'll create this ballpark where you know how to operate inside of. And in terms of the written format thing. Yes, I do write essays about all my videos and projects. Um, so I, I, I tend to be pretty scatterbrained and there can be a thousand different ideas. But what I try to do is I, instead of laying out a rigid formula for what I'm going to do, I try to, I try to write out the end result that I want people to feel and what I want people to, how I want them to react and what's the general effect that I'm going to get through this video. So for the watch one, what I wanted was something emerging like a diamond and rough. And I know this sounds very artsy fartsy and a little bit woo woo, but <laughs> what I wanted was to have this, this really cool object, like a watch, for example, uh, emerge from this, this almost like black looking liquid, but it was actually sand and for it to rise up and, and have like this impactful, almost vibrational earthquake feeling to it and add sound effects and everything. So that's what I wanted. But what I got was complete 
horse crap. That's what I got before I started experimenting. <laughs> so that's the thing is if you have a generalized feeling or emotion or end result that you want people to uh, see, then that's really what you want to build inside of. But but in terms of uh, what you can or are willing to do, it's good to paint that picture before you start because whenever I start a project preemptively and I leave it completely open-ended, like, oh, I'm willing to do anything, it ends up being a five or 20 minute long video that I can't possibly produce. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can totally agree with the fact that having a blank page is almost like not having any restriction at all for any project is kind of like a nightmare because what direction do you take it? Like there's no wrong answer, right? You could, you could take it anywhere that you want. So, um, I, I totally get that, that sentiment about being restricted a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. creative, uh, creative projects are like a GPS. You have a general vision of where you want it to go. If you take a wrong turn and exit the freeway, that's totally fine. As long as you get there. Right. So <laughs> if you, if you, if you have to go through all the back roads and do a bunch of different turns, you weren't willing, uh, planning to do, then the, the vision is all that matters. So, um, yeah, I, I would I would say if you can if you can write down certain traits or characteristics or even or even document the inspirations you have for that video, let's say you had inspirations for it, then you would just have reference points to look back at when you go back on track or off track. I just want to say I really appreciate the fact that um, that project it's sort of like a like a physics showcase. Like you picked a single physical phenomenon and you built off of that, and I feel like that just that makes the idea and the video just. It revolves around a really clean principle, uh, which I think really adds to the effect. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of the same theme with a lot of my uh, projects in general. Um, if if you have a if you have a strong foundation, let's say for a house or something, you can build whatever the hell you want to build. It can be it can be a, a ten foot a ten story building, or it can be something with a nice deck and whatnot. But uh, if you have a strong foundation for an idea then that's where the pivoting, um, the application for pivoting that idea in different directions and alternatives, that's where it really comes into play. Did you um, have any sort of external influence in, in making you go that direction other than like you going to the river and you thinking about buoyancy? Because um, there's, for me, there's sort of like a cycle in social media where you see one thing, then you see it again. Um, we saw that like maybe a year ago with like the, the Lawa probe lens, like everyone started using yeah. that. Um, and then I think uh, around in that, like last year, like um, I think Mark Rober did his uh, like buoyancy and sand thing where instead of vibrating the sand, he pumped air through it. Um, did any of that cross your mind? Well, I no, I, I, I watched a video from this. Uh, I, he, he's a science professor, a very popular one actually on YouTube. I, I I can't remember his name. I'll send you guys a link after we're done with the podcast. But he he basically did the exact same uh, project, and he did it a while back. And I watched this maybe a year, year and a half ago. And so I was I was fascinated back then. And a lot of times I'll store ideas in my mind, and I I, I will have this physics idea in my mind, and I won't really think of anything to do with that for a while. And what'll happen is I'll I'll think of okay, I want to film this watch. Is there any way that I could present this watch in a really cool idea? Oh, well, I remember maybe a year, year and a half ago, I saw the physics project. What if I did something with that? And then that's when I go to the river and start practicing buoyancy or uh, uh, experimenting with it and everything. And I just get a bunch of black sand from uh, Petco. It's, it's aquarium sand. That's all it is. <laughs> so that, uh, so a, lot of, a lot of times inspiration 
it accumulates like barnacles over time. And I won't necessarily have a, a, an immediate project in mind in the short term to do with it. But I'll, I'll put it on my poster board of things that I am inspired by or just things that I find fascinating. And my my videos, I'm not really trying to entertain other people. I'm trying to entertain just myself because I get bored really easily. And if if I'm bored of my video, then what are other people going to think of it too? I totally get that. Um, so what about some of the um, the videos that are, are more like mechatronic in nature? Um, like I, I see you using like uh, linear actuators and, and stuff like that. Uh, what kind of motion control software and hardware are you using uh, for that? And uh, I guess also for me, because like that's something I totally love to do. Um, like, were these tools that you were exposed to before? You, you did your research. How did you come to the tool set that you're using today? Okay, the earlier how I mentioned that this is a, a bit of an emerging industry of, let's say, filmmakers and photographers using technology. I have never met anyone else in LA or wherever I've lived who did what I did. So I had to resort to just learning it on my own and kind of thinking of ways to utilize the tools that I kind of had or, or information on the internet. Now, the motion control software, I don't have a motion control software. Um, I just use Arduino and, I, and the IDE I program in there. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll just uh, interface all the hardware and electronics components with the goal that I have in mind for it to do. And um, like, like, for example, I've used uh, ClearPath Motors before. So they have their own software for tuning, auto-tuning the servos, right? But, but in terms of programming, it'll come back to an Arduino and C++. There is, there is a software called DragonFrame that's quite popular with filmmakers. I think if you don't know how to program, let's just say you don't know anything about coding or programming, then that is a software that you can purchase and you don't need any coding skills whatsoever. Uh, all, all, the, all the, uh, the acceleration curves and whatnot, it's all done inside that software. And yeah, I think you can control maybe, I'm not really sure, maybe, maybe six axes if you wanted to. Okay, so you could do like a full camera slider with focus control, zoom control, all that good stuff. Good stuff. Correct, correct, yeah. But I, I can't personally vouch for, I can't testimonialize for that software because I've never used it. But I, I, gotcha. do, I do know that a lot of people um, in the filmmaking industry, they might use that if, if they don't uh, want to learn programming. Gotcha. Um, so like way back in the day, I like had this idea to maybe make a camera slider. Um, also Arduino based, are you, uh, just basically programming start and end points? Or are you also like sort of doing a little bit of basic curve fitting in there with the kinds of projects that you're doing? Well, the, the thing is the curves only apply if you're trying to accelerate into something, right. Or out uh, or down from something. So if, mm -hmm. if you just want a slider that goes back and forth, then you could use a really simple program that just starts and stops. Uh, but if, if you want something that has a smooth curve to it, then yeah, you, you probably have to use a, a couple of arrays in there or program the, the acceleration curve or hertz cycle for the signal. But that's, it, it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing crazy complicated, you know? It, it's not like we'd be building a rocket ship or something. It's like ease in, ease out at the ends of the motion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, have you guys personally tinkered with Arduino projects? Oh yeah, I have. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, 
so yeah, it's it's just like blinking an LED. If if you can if you can accelerate an LED blink, then um, then in theory you can have it applied to a motor too, like a stepper motor, for example. So it's yeah, it's it's, like, it's yeah, very 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 classic example of something like an LED light applying to a lot of things. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, we've um, at least two of the co-hosts we've worked with. Uh, another videography team they're, they're more focused on uh event videography it's uh chris and ryan harris i don't know if you know them but they do they do uh the video for like Lollapalooza, those kinds of things and okay yeah also um you know basically two young guys that one of them's uh i think the kind of the talent with the camera uh director type guy uh, or director yeah. of photography and the other uh chris makes all their robotic camera rigs uh, in-house with shape. Well, they probably upgraded by now, but when we were talking to them, they they were basically uh, making everything they needed on Shapeoko and a bunch, you know, doing their own mechatronics, putting it all together. Some pretty sophisticated yeah. uh, uh, rigs, you know, like the, I don't know what they call them, but like at the Super Bowl where they have the cable cam. So they're doing those. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, really yeah. tall uh, masts, like, I don't know, they look like they were probably 30 feet. Um, telescoping mass, all kinds of crazy stuff with, you know, gyroscopic mm -hmm. uh, camera mounts on the ends. And, yeah. you know, same thing. It seems to be like <laughs> the kind of small world I live in, but like the only vid videographers I know now are all doing that, that mechatronics uh, in-house and CNC and everything kind of putting it all together to like, they're basically fully empowered to, to do whatever their creativity drives them to do. Right. They don't have to necessarily wait for some company to invent the technology or a particular mount that they need or motion platform. They just go make it and then they yeah. get the shots they want. So that's, that's pretty cool. I like that concept. Right. Well, what I've noticed is in a product development environment where you are a person who has this ability to CNC machine stuff, design things, both CAD and CAM, and you can bring your own product to market for an industry that you are completely in tune with. Let's say you're a filmmaker. If, if you can bring a product to market, it's a lot of times really cool because if it fails, well, maybe you can continue working as a filmmaker anyways. A lot of, a lot of these guys have a background in filmmaking, but I, I would say that it's, it's also a negative in the B2B environment because in that space, um, uh, do you guys, you guys have a, a job shop? You guys have your own shops, correct? We have, uh, so I have an industrial machine in my garage, kind of the scenario you were talking about that would oh, be a geez. challenge. Yeah, I actually okay. did that, had the riggers bring it into a, a one car <laughs> it's a garage. UMC. <laughs> up a, a, up a UMC steep slope. in your garage, okay. Yeah, I have a, a Daytron Neo, which is actually a little bit smaller than the CM, the Haas yeah. CM. Um, okay. It's actually pretty, pretty, pretty good uh, choice for the garage. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and, yeah. and I think Chris, Chris has a shop. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a UMC at a, at a shop that I share with my buddy. Oh, okay. So the UMC is in a shop. Okay, got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought you were saying that you had a UMC in the garage. I was, I was mind blown. No, for a second. That, that's next. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that that might be next. But yeah. It's more more that of a twenty twenty one thing. But <laughs> right. right. Yeah, so in, in a in a B two B situation, a lot of times you have sales teams. A lot of people who have B two B businesses, they don't necessarily market as much as a B two C company. Because the, the, the product in B2C, they want the product to sell itself through marketing. But in b 
B2B, you have a sales team and a sales force. And a lot of times yeah. you deploy them to go out and talk to people and go to conventions and, and trade shows. And, and a lot of times show off the things that you guys do. And so it can be a struggle for, for a person who's in, let's say, my industry with camera technology and whatnot, trying to market a service of machining uh, to people who have absolutely no engineering background. Because what they'll do is they'll go, oh, can you make us a gimbal? It's like, well, maybe. <laughs> what kind of gimbal you need? Oh, I just want a, I just want a big ass gimbal that can, that can. A black one, red. yeah, 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 yeah. But, and and like that black paint or whatever. Oh, you know, well, if it's aluminum, you might want to anodize that. No, no, whatever. Yeah, whatever. But uh, okay, well, what's the payload? Um, I think my camera's like ten pounds, but the lenses each are probably like two pounds or something like that. And the thing is, it becomes a design nightmare. Yeah. And there was actually, uh, there was actually a a company called EFX that is in. They're kind of close to you, Chris. I think they're in Monrovia, but they they oh, okay. yeah they specialize in in doing, let's say, art installations, pop ups, um, booths, and and props for Hollywood effects and whatnot. And uh, they have a, a big CNC router. They don't have a VMC or anything. But one time I was talking to the owner and he's, I, I asked him, so how does the whole process go with like your clients? Do they, do they send you a, uh, drawings? They sell technical drawings? Because if they're in Hollywood, I wouldn't expect them to have an engineering department, you know? And they go, well, we, we just kind of work with the clients and, and think of a solution for them. And we just kind of design it ourselves and whatnot. And uh, I thought, Jesus Christ, that sounds like a nightmare. You know, like you, you, for the most part in the, in the job shop I worked at, you just want to have someone, you just want to uh, have an RFQ. You, you, you send an RFQ, a request for quote, or sorry, they send one. And, and then you have them send you a PO and the drawings and everything. And you give them yep. uh, an invoice and they have the, the drawings and whatnot. And you just make it. That's all it is. And a lot of times, actually, you don't, you don't really know what the parts are going toward. You don't know if it's going to be on a spaceship or an airplane or a car or whatever you just you just know you're making this part to these exact dimensions and and um, and tolerances. So yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I think there are going to be a lot of uh, a lot of people who have to be introduced to uh, kind of that in that combination industry between things like CNC machining and filmmaking and specialists that can that can talk to those shops and give them the information they need. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say it because like all three of us take on uh, job shoppy type work, you know, small projects. Uh, I'm starting to take on some bigger work and it's the same thing. We've all kind of dealt with, you know, for the most part, at least my clients are either other, you know, they're basically people familiar with manufacturing. They're a pleasure to work with, right? Because they, they send you good drawings, good specs, they understand tolerances. And then every once in a while, you'll get someone who's just got a product idea, not really from a manufacturing background and you know, they have like a couple of sketches and a, <laughs> on a napkin, <laughs> <laughs> napkin, and, and yeah, no concept napkin. of what it costs, right, to build what whatever it is they have in mind, right? They're and, and my my favorites. Um, well, we have these. Uh, well, I don't know, but I don't want to talk about details. But yeah, it's definitely much more pleasant to deal, or much more fruitful to deal with somebody uh, or a company who's kind of got some familiarity with how things are made, right? Um, oh yeah. Yeah, and there's I think there's a market to be made for a patient person who can, who can create that intermediary <laughs> company that, that kind of sits between the 
the manufacturing and job shops and, and the creative types that really have no mechanical aptitude and don't care to pick that up, right? Their skills lie elsewhere and then can kind of <laughs> create that translation. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That, that would actually be really good. I, th- I think, I think uh, those fields definitely need people like that. Yeah, it's like teaching though. You got you got that that right patience and mindset to to be good at yeah. that. <laughs> I know, I know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's already hard enough to deal with some clients that give you a print. I can only imagine if there was no print and just a bunch like like a description of what they wanted. Like, I can't even imagine trying to work with somebody and try to make the thing that they're imagining. Yes, yes. Um, it's like a nightmare just thinking about it. And like I said, even with a print, it can still already be a nightmare. So I can only imagine without one, it'd be, it'd be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Combination of metric and inches. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had uh, so when I started off here, I had um, like small hobby machines. Like I think the biggest build volume on my first machine I had was five inches by, or five and a half inches by four and a half inches by 1.6 inches in Z. It's like tiny little, it's like a PCB <laughs> mill. Yeah, it was a Bantam Tools machine, um, which I now have too. I love those machines, but they're small, right? <laughs> and I had this one client who saw myself on Instagram and or prospective client and he kept wanting me, like he's trying to find somebody to make him uh, like an air, uh, gun barrel for an airsoft gun that was like a replica of a, a 50 cal. It's like, so, you know, 16 or 20 inch long barrel. <laughs> machined out of steel and I kept you know explaining to him I can't make that on my little machine <laughs> didn't quite now that was a why now, now that was a, a DIY machine or was that the the pocket NC machine that you guys so I have the pocket NC but I have also have a bantam tools machines oh uh, bantam they, okay yeah the little three axis uh you know originally designed for just milling PCB boards for rapid prototyping but you know I've kind of well, other people have figured out, right? We've all figured out they, they do pretty good in aluminum and brass, small projects too. So uh, yeah, I've got a couple of those, a couple of pocket NCs for five axis work and then the the uh, Daytron Neo in the garage for big now, projects. Are, are they the company that's coming out with another uh, milling machine, a uh, yeah, yeah. desktop oh. CNC? Um, so both. Uh, so Bantam's got a machine they've been teasing, which I think they're announcing like all the details this week. Do, okay. Winston probably knows. I think, and then next week, next July week, seventh is when. Oh yeah, the seventh. And then uh, Pocket and C has a machine. They've kind of been dropping hints about for about a year now. They've, so they've got a, a bigger five-axis machine in the works. It's going to be probably more prosumer uh, or even higher, higher end. But still, you know, form factor-wise, still could fit on a workbench. Um, you know, it's not something you need riggers to bring in. And then. I guess yeah. Winston works for uh, Carbide 3D, and I think you guys. Oh, okay. You guys, yeah, you guys, guys, yeah, got something in the works. Coming out uh, this summer. That's all I can say for now. Yeah. But it'll it'll be soon. When yeah. this Similar summer? Similar class to the Phantom, I think, but <laughs> um, with our own twist. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So so in a way, you guys almost might be competing in a in a similar weight class or uh, capacity. That would be fair to say. Um, we'll know more once uh, Bantam puts their cards on the table. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Uh, what do you guys think of that pocket NC? You guys like it? Yes. Uh, uh, the V two fifty, especially the one, the second. Well, I guess it, the second version of the second generation machine where they went to the high speed NSK spindle, like the fifty k RPM spindle. That machine's like punches well above its weight class. Is what I would say. Um, yeah, I've actually done some. I actually 
did some pretty good commercial work on that for about a year before I got the bigger machine. And uh, I mean, you know, it's still hobby class, right? So it's not going to compete with something like Chris's UMC 500. But uh, for like small work, it's it was actually pretty good. Um, the one with the slower spindle for the kind of work I do, the the older, I guess the previous generation, um, it's a very good machine, but didn't I usually work, like most of my work on the hobby machines is like two millimeter in mils and smaller. So without the extra RPM, it's a bit of a challenge on the B210 with the 10K RPM limit. But a lot of folks are working on those machines with, uh, they're doing like wood and um, actually there's some guy, I think there's some people making watch cases on those with much bigger tools, like quarter inch tools. Yeah, and Winston's done some big projects on the V210, right? You've got some uh, I mean, four inch by three inch. I've done inch. large projects. Like I've done a four and a half inch tall little circular Bluetooth speaker. Um, but I mean, last month I put like 50 hours on the spindle making like little SpaceX uh, dragon capsules out of aluminum. Yeah, those uh, so are cool. You can, you can push the machines pretty hard. Um, you just need to work within the limitations of it. And so the big one for me is like the 60 inch per minute feed rate, uh, which in, in wood, like you could push a little faster. The spindle has the torque for it. Uh, but then when you get to tiny end mills, you don't have the RPM to be able to, to push really fast. So there's sort of like a sweet spot uh, uh, size and material project that they really shine mm -hmm. in unless you go up to that 50,000 RPM spindle. Yeah, I, I think it's a great machine, like for all the things that Eddie and Winston have said. But I think one of the most things that I appreciate the machine for is the fact that everything that I learned on the Pocket NC translated to the UMC. There was, it wasn't anything programming wise that I had to change. It was basically the same yeah. thing. Um, you know, with the Pocket NC, there's like a zero point kind of system where you pick a point and that's your workhorse offset. That's kind of the same way that I do it with the Rocklock setup on the UMC. And like just the fact that there was no learning curve for me going from the small machine to the big machine made it so much worth my while to learn on the Pocket NC because I did all my crashes and I broke all my tools in that thing. And that doesn't cost as yeah. much as the UMC. So I did all my learning on it. And the fact that it translated is just like it's gold. You know, like you can't buy it. Yeah, and your, your workflow and fusion is exactly the same I mean, between those, you know. Yeah, absolutely nothing changed except for the fact yeah. that I can go faster than the UMC, right? That's the pretty much it. Um, like, like, if you can fit whatever it is that you're doing on the Pocket NC, it's a no-brainer. Like, as long as it fits on there and it can cut whatever it is you're trying to do, you'll be able to figure out whatever parameter or things you need to do to make it work. Um, you know, Winston did a project where, like, he basically capped out on the limit on every axis possible, <laughs> like in Y and X. And but you, you always just find a way to make it work, and it's very capable for for what it is, and especially the cost. Like, where are you going to find a five-axis machine that can cut aluminum or even titanium uh, that fits on your desk for under ten k? Wow. Yeah, it's you know, it's un, it's really there's no there's no in between. It's like ten k, and then it's just like a hundred plus. Yeah, right? for five like, axis, there's nothing for sure. in between there. Yeah. So then I think the next machine is going to be tapping into that in-between market as well, like the like prosumer version where I think it's going to cut a way bigger piece of stock. It's going to have coolant. It's going to have an automatic tool changer, and it'll still fit on a, a bench or, or something like that in your garage. So yeah, it's, one, it's one thing that there aren't too many five-axis companies that are doing that. They're, they're definitely trailblazing, and it's also pretty remarkable how they're how, – how, few and far between there are of three axis companies that are in uh, in between a Tormach and a hobby, uh, uh, like, say like a desktop 
converted mill. There aren't too many. And I, I, I'm interested in seeing that market grow um, in the, maybe the next five years. Yeah, I, I think it has to grow. I mean, people are, as things get cheaper, uh, uh, digital fabrication becomes more easily accessible to people. People start getting into like, you know, whatever 3D printing that takes them to CNC. I, I think I can't imagine it not getting into the hands of more people as the years go on. Things will get cheaper and smaller and start fitting on desks and hopefully, um, you know, the education of, I, I feel like when I talk to like my nephew and nieces, they're always trying to push them to learn about like coding and software stuff. And then I'm always pulling them to the side and showing them like the CNC machine and, or I'm making something for them on the spot and their mind explodes because they have no, they had no concept or idea of like how this thing got into their hand. But when I walk them through like, Hey, this is how you do it. They just, they're just in shock most of the time and completely captivated, you know, for being a five and seven year old. So I hope I, I yeah I hope it grows and I, I can't see it not um, expanding into that market for people to do yeah. stuff at home. Yeah, my my thoughts on on the future of fabrication and manufacturing in America is it's it's not necessarily a open or close the borders thing. It's not a tariff or a no tariff thing. I think it's a more of a cultural thing, and Americans are just right now more interested in things like software and tech their version of tech in comparison to manufacturing, I think because of the way it's presented, it's a lot like Hollywood, right? Like people are, are gravitated towards a certain industry because of how sexy it looks to them in videos. And I think the more people who are creating content about things like manufacturing and CNC, as it gets cheaper, more affordable for people, I think the more people will get into it and, and it'll be more of a sub subculture that grows um, in the next you know, five or 10 years, which I think is a great thing. One of the other things I noticed was you, you started another page called Camera Choreo. Is that is that a place for you to put this stuff on there? Or is that like a separate business thing? Or what what is that? Uh, I've, I've pondered about that maybe being the uh, the DBA for the, the business that I start in the future. But right now, it's just a dumping grounds that's more streamlined and filtered compared to my, my uh, main one. Because my main one, it sort of acts as personal slash business. So... I I know that there are a lot of people out there who are a little bit weird, like where I uh, I used to make YouTube videos in the past during mostly my photography career when I was getting a little more into building stuff. And um, I made I made a lot of videos in the beginning about photography and the career and all that stuff. And as as you kind of show a content that's diverse in the sense that it shows what you're interested in or maybe even some of your personal life. There are some people out there who who only want to follow things that they like in terms of work and they don't really care about personal life and whatnot. So I made that account just in case people wanted to see only the work and not follow me. <laughs> it's for now. For now, it's as simple as that. Uh, I want to circle back just a little bit um, where you were talking about um, sort of like the American perception of machining. And so as someone who makes like just CNC videos all the time. Do you have any tips or suggestions on how to make machining sexy? Um, like I actually, I watched some of your old content and like um, just this uh, yesterday, I released a promo for like the next generation uh, Nomad uh, desktop CNC that Carbide 3D is releasing. And like, I looked through some of your shots and I was like, oh, like I'm gonna like uh, borrow like that for inspiration, which was a, a shot of like the, uh, the brother controller just scrolling through G code. Just like random clips like that for like B-roll ideas. 
Um, but how do you approach trying to make this uh, the, the manufacturing process look interesting uh, to both machinists and just the general public? Okay, here's a here's a good example. When you guys as machinists are standing in front of your machine, a lot of times it's the most incredible thing in the world, right? Or when you see a part that comes off of it, you're like, holy crap, I made this and it's special. But how many times have you shown someone who's not in the industry at all something that you've made and they're like, oh, cool. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's all you get. That's all yeah. you get. It, it, can go, it, it applies to woodworking welding, CNC machining, 3D printing. A lot of times I'll, I'll show someone who's a close friend of mine who I think is going to think it's awesome or a family member. And I'm like, look at this thing I made. Isn't that like some epic shit right there? And they're like, nice, cool. <laughs> and <laughs> like, what? I spent 20 hours designing this. And, and this is the thing. So when uh, kind of just very pre, very quickly circling back to the thing we talked about with B2B marketing, right? You, a lot of times you have a sales team. What, what I think, and there's a sort of, um, this sort of divide between marketing and sales. People, a lot of people in sales hate marketing because they think it misrepresents or they, they fudge the prices or it's misrepresentative, misrepresentative of what they're trying to sell. But marketing is there to automate a lot of the sales that people don't have time to do because sales takes time. And one thing that I've noticed whenever I go to a manufacturing facility or a job shop or a production shop is when they, when they do uh, deals and they try to close a deal, a lot of times what their end goal is, is to get the customer or the prospect to the shop so they can show them their big fancy million dollar machine. <laughs> right. And then it's like, Oh cool. You yeah. got money deal. So the thing is, why can't people automate the a virtual tour? Why do you have to get people in their busy day to take out and uh, one or two hours of their time to come to your shop and you give them your sales pitch and you show them your fancy machine and then your website looks like it's from 1997. So this applies to both content creation in terms of video, what you're talking about, Winston, and in terms of marketing in general. Um, but what I would suggest is when you're standing in front of your machine, it's the most impressive, most I impress uh, coolest thing ever because you're there and that's why people bring people to their shop to show them the experience it's all about experience but with video we don't have access to all five of our senses we we can't smell the machine we can't smell the coolant getting on our clothes or something we certainly can't taste what what that atmosphere is like and um we only have access to our sight and our our hearing so in in my videos and a lot of filmmaking in general what you'll notice is there is this, this almost uh, art form of amplifying a visual experience through things like uh, sound design and through things like cuts and transitions and lighting. Lighting's a big thing for me. And if you can find ways to take someone's perception of what you're doing as if they're standing right there and coming along that roller coaster of a ride with you, you got them. Like, that's all it takes. So, um, uh, just to recap, you only have you only have access to your sight and your hearing, sight and sound. If you can amplify those two things, your goal. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's simple in concept, but to execute it and execute it well takes a really good understanding of like what's visually appealing, what audio cues will will resonate with people. Um, but 
that, I think that all takes practice. Well, um, okay. Sorry, I'm used to talking to like filmmakers. <laughs> um, uh, okay, uh, so what what's something you're working on right now, or, or a video that you want to put up? Um, I'm trying to think, just project wise, what I have on my uh, agenda um, right now. Really, it's it's just so I'm I'm going to spill the beans a little on okay. my plans for. Uh, the new Nomad. Um, so traditionally, um, like what Bantam's doing, like their marketing is like, hey, let's show the machine doing something cool. Uh, so like, uh, I'm sure you've seen on Instagram, if you're following the Insta Machinist hashtag, I'm sure their advertising is targeting that. But they've got um, videos of just the machine surfacing aluminum, making chips, whatever, like that, that your standard machining type content. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to do was something a little different, which was to like show off how the machine is made. Because we're doing a lot of this in-house. Like We're machining all the structural parts of this, the frame, um, the, the carriage plates, the spindle uh, housing. And so I wanted to sort of step away from just the, the CNC porn and show some of the process and the story yeah. of how we're making this. Uh-huh. Um, so I just I wanted to try something different. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah. uh, I think one... A good embodiment of what I was just talking about, just in case it was too artsy fartsy, um, is have you guys seen this video called The Life of a Bolt? By uh, the F1 team? Yes, yes. That that video, along with the video that um, I think one of you gentlemen mentioned earlier, the Apple uh, Mac Pro video, those two videos are a good a good examples of what I was talking about in, in, in terms of the experiential aspect of video. So one thing you could try is you, you take a, a typical day or uh, the process of making the machine that you guys are manufacturing right now or prototyping, and you write down all the key parts of that process. It might be maybe step one is setup or programming and setup. And then you show the probing and then you show um, a tool change and whatnot. Like every small thing about what happens in machining can be kind of uh, uh, highlighted for that, that mini reel. And um, my whole thing is, like I mentioned earlier, you only have like 15 seconds to captivate people in a video. Um, one way to do that is by changing the pace or changing the angle constantly. Because people, like they don't necessarily, if they're machinists, they might be looking specifically for machining porn. But if they're normal, average people, a lot of times people are looking for video porn in general. And one thing you can do to, to make that video porn uh, uh, stimulating for them is just by giving them a bunch of angles, a bunch of different lighting changes. Uh, and instead of filming an end mill in, in um, dull, flat lighting, put a rim light behind it, move the head of that light from left to right in slow motion and then give it this whoosh sound effect behind it. Something as small as that really opens the doors for, for what else you can do. I think I'm going to have a lot of fun at work this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd, uh, so you guys are based in LA? Uh, yeah, we're in uh, Torrance. So if you ever want to stop by, let me know. I'd be curious to see uh, how, how you guys are going about the filming. Uh, maybe I can do a, uh, a mini consultation or something like that and, and just give my thoughts. But... Um, I'm no expert. I just mess around. That's all it is. Uh, well, that would be fantastic because <laughs> I'm the only one doing content, and uh, a lot I'm of a pressure. mechanical engineer by trade. So oh, okay, okay. 
Um, yeah. This is, it's an interesting experience. Yeah. Uh, people who, who, who see engineering nowadays, who a lot of times get into engineering, I would say we're from a generation where uh, they, they think it's going to be incredibly cool because of how the Iron Man uh, movies came out. And I, I, think, I think they did a great job. It's not always accurate. Well, it's not accurate because it's not realistic. But it, the way they portray Iron Man and like the mechanical aspects, the sound effects, uh, sound design, all that stuff, the lighting, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I think um, as content creators who are into things like uh, making and technology, it's really fun to play with that and getting some inspiration, maybe even from Iron Man. Not necessarily with all the crazy over-the-top sound effects, but to a degree where it's it's realistic within the realm of machining to have seen that angle, you know? Yeah, it's um, like a lot of times in, in movies and like anything with like superheroes, visually they take a lot of shortcuts. Like you, you have an animation, oh, we'll just put like some kind of vague generic energy effect where Iron Man 1 holds up really well. I know I'm going on like a cinema tangent, but like they they show like actuation of different parts and how they move and interact and it feels so much more grounded than a lot of the just like anyone with like a any ability that's not derived from like a physical creation um like it just it's it's very satisfying to see that kind of thing <clears throat> yeah so have you guys seen the dmg more videos uh, there is a startup in the Midwest. They actually might be one of the first startups, if not the startup, to bring industrial VMCs to a lower price of, let's say, between 15 and 17K, um, which is reasonable compared to, let's say, a, I don't want to you know, say anything negative about Tormach because I, I have never used one or owned one. But I know Tormach, realistically, when you buy one, and it's it's fully specked out and everything and equipped. It can be maybe thirty k, twenty five. So it's it's a it's a big thing. And uh, what they were looking at for inspiration was the DMG Mori commercials and the ads that you see on YouTube. We're not we. It's still kind of a potential thing. I'm not one hundred percent going to work with this company. Um, but if we do, we're trying to to formulate a way to do something kind of like that, but not exactly. Because I I do think the DMG Mori uh, sound effects to machinists don't always appeal. I've seen people on the machining, uh, like machinist background people commenting on the DMG Mori saying, oh, they obviously have never operated, operated VMC before. Spindles don't sound like that, et cetera, et cetera. But it depends on the audience, right? So Winston, if your audience are 30 to 50 year old machinists who have 20 years of experience doing CNC and operating five axis work and setup and programming, then they probably will just want the typical CNC porn and they won't really want all the cinematic aspect of it. But if, if Carbide 3D is aiming for a much broader audience, they're trying to create a culture around the product and they're trying to make it something that is sexy to people who are between the ages of 16 and 30 year old business people, startups, people who are into design, then they might not have as much of a they might have a wider threshold for uh, cinematic um, openness. And they, they might be very open to just you getting crazy with the camera angles and lighting and the sound effects. So that, that's one thing I think to consider is, is the audience matters a lot. Yeah, totally. Um, so we've done 
I, I can't say we've done research, but anecdotally, like we know there's a very broad range of people who buy our machines. So like some of them are like your your old timey woodworkers. Some of them are people who run VMCs and just need something for their garage. Some of them are artists. And so it's it's really hard to narrow down a specific um, like a like subset of, of audience. Um, so I kind of I feel like I've got to do a, a bit of variety. So like one video might be more focused on like the artistic, um, the, the visual presentation of the machine. One of them might be more on like technical capabilities and things like that. One of them might be uh, aspirational, like, hey, look at the types of projects you can make. So there's a lot to think about um, and a lot of different ways to approach this. Yeah. Have you, uh, so you put out a video yesterday, right? And that one was sort of uh, a teaser. It was. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could, uh, I mean, maybe you've, maybe you've already thought about this or maybe what you just said was a version of this, but um, it's kind of like websites when you click on a website and you're filtering people in to the checkout window. Um, so you, you hit a landing page on a website. A lot of times the most fancy, most attractive thing and the most attractive images and videos might be on the homepage of a website. So that's, that's like the get, in, get, your, get them in the door type thing. And you have a, uh, another tab that is all about the specifics of, of what they want to see and the details. So um, in a video format, that could look like a reel, a video reel, like you said, or a teaser. And you just go crazy artistic with it. Something that's just out of, like, out of the realm of what you're usually doing. And it just gets people talking. And it's very short and sweet. It, it goes no longer than 30 seconds. And you do that right before it launches and you have uh like a sub panel of, sh of other other short videos or longer videos that have specifically machining porn on them and that's all it is so um i i think uh like you said it'd be it'd be probably good to break it into a a multi uh multiple category video thing hmm. okay yeah now i've uh i've got like a notebook of just ideas uh, right now, the, the videos are formatted based on just the timeline, so uh, we're not ready to show the whole machine yet, so I'm sort of creeping up to it. That's why um, this teaser was like more about the, the structure, the frame, how we're building the foundation for the machine. And then as we finalize the rest of the, uh, the details, we'll start showing that, like the spindle, like uh, the accessories and, and the things you can make with it towards the end. So that's sort of my rough roadmap. I just... Um, I figured I'd, I'd bounce these ideas off someone creative like you just to see how I might improve this uh, this roadmap. Yeah, you can send it to me uh, if you want to. Um, anything you're comfortable sending, uh, you can also just send me like uh, uh, um, the progress of the edits you're working on. Um, so yeah, it, it's like I mentioned earlier. If you can entertain yourself through a video, then you're probably you're probably good. Yeah, uh, for me, it's just I'm having a little fun with this because most of the time I'm making uh, like tutorial videos and stuff that doesn't give me as much creative freedom. So this is like just a kind of a fun exercise for me. Hey, guys, we're, we're uh, coming up on well, actually we're past 75 minutes, so uh, I don't want to keep Daniel too long. <laughs> um, yeah. Any uh, last minute questions, guys, before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, no, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I, 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 I'll apologize if, if uh, the stuff that I'm saying is, is uh, um, it can be hard for me to articulate, uh, let's say, like a creative philosophy or a way of doing something visually, just audibly. So if, uh, if um, Winston or you guys or anyone wanted to um, 
maybe send clips or something of what you're working on and and uh, we can just have like a little chat going on about you know the progress of your guys's content creation and all that stuff we can definitely do that oh that that would mean a lot to me and I, I totally appreciate that um what's what's next for you like what's your next thing that you want to do or plan on doing well i'm doing these short projects just for fun so um the thing I, I've been getting a lot of people messaging me asking me if I can do this for their film production or their photo shoot or something, and I've done a lot of that actually in the past, especially when I lived in LA. So I'm I'm being very selective about which jobs I'm willing to take on, um, and and that's something that I'm open to. But in the meantime, I'll be creating more videos, doing client work that I can actually take on. Um, I'm doing a bunch of random building projects actually for my neighbors, so I'm doing like. I'm building garden garden enclosures and whatnot. It's really fun, and um, and besides that, I am still working on the CNC. So I'll be working on that for the better half of the month. Uh, well, actually, this is the end of the month, so I'll be working on this whole thing. I think in July, and seeing if it can uh, if it can actually make some chips. So we'll see. Nice. Um, and my my goal with that machine, like I mentioned earlier, is to start prototyping uh, some ideas I have for products, uh, primarily for photographers and filmmakers and creatives in the field. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see Big Earth uh, come alive. <laughs> I just hope it turns on. That's that's. I'll be happy if she turns on. <laughs> Hey, Daniel, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show tonight. Uh, very interesting conversation. I appreciate the the time. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you guys inviting me on, and I also, also appreciate your audience for uh, for suffering through my uh, my weird creative philosophical <laughs> rants. But no, I think it's um, great. Uh, so a lot of our audience is also they're also YouTube content creators. So I think they're going to get oh, a lot okay. out of that conversation. So that's very good. Yeah, okay. awesome. Okay, guys. Well, I'll say good night. Thanks okay. for uh, coming on, Daniel. And sure. Maybe we'll talk again once you get uh, ships running on a uh, big Bertha. Yes, yes. I actually also intend on visiting LA maybe in the next month. So if I am out there, then I'll, okay. I'll definitely hit you guys up. Yeah, Sounds that'd good. be great. Thanks again, Daniel. Really appreciate the time and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Okay. All right, everyone. See you.